This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Eric Klopfer, the chair of the Department of Comparative Media Studies and Writing at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. At MIT, Eric is also the director of the Scheller Teaching Education Program, as well as the Education Arcade. These describe themselves as focusing on creating playful, powerful learning experiences using the affordances of new educational technologies. Eric is a leader in the space of game design for education, which is how I learned about him when I used a game that he co-developed. And Eric doesn't just develop games, he theorizes about them in a book with two co-authors called Resident Games, Design Principles for Learning Games that Connect Hearts, Minds, and the Everyday. In this book, the authors discuss four freedoms of play introduced by Scott Osterwell, one of the book's co-authors. These are the freedom to experiment, meaning that we can try different things, freedom of identity, meaning that we can role play as a part of our learning, the freedom to fail or to explore a space and to test its boundaries, and the freedom of effort or the ability to fluctuate how intensively we engage in activity. During our conversation, Eric also discussed games as an example of experiential learning, and he emphasized the importance of combining a game with reflection, which is where the real learning happens through what Eric calls the action-reflection cycle, which sounds to me similar to how we think about the importance of rest between rigorous physical activity. Finally, we discussed the game that originally led me to speak with Eric, a simulation of the tragedy of the commons in a fishery. In addition to this episode, I have also just published a blog post on the InCommon website in which I describe my experiences implementing this game with two of my classes. So check that out if you want more information about this game. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Klopfer. Thanks for meeting with me, Eric. I'm really excited to talk to you for a variety of reasons. As I mentioned, I learned uh, about you and your work through this Tragedy of the Commons simulation game that I used for the first time, as I told you in my main policy class that I'm teaching this summer. And it was a lot of fun. We really nerded out about this QR code <laughs> technology that allowed students to kind of bop around the classroom. That seemed really innovative to me. I'll make sure to put in the show notes links to all of that. Um, we have, we're starting to develop in the, in the In Common podcast blog, a series of entries about the use of games in education. And I mentioned to you during our initial correspondence that I'd like to write an entry about this game and the lessons I've learned. We're also planning on maybe using it in a larger course of 80 students this fall. So Great time to talk to you. I don't want to just pick your brain about that. That's uh, no, great. Glad about to that game. Yeah. So to get us to that, uh, that a specific example, though, Eric, I'd love to start with asking you what I call uh, about your origin story. I saw on your CV that you got a PhD in zoology. I think it was it was it from University of Wisconsin in Madison. Yep, that's correct. Um. So I'd love to hear from you kind of how you got from A to B to C. What motivated you to pursue that degree and how has it influenced your career path since then? That's the kind of first half. And then I'll, I want to follow up with where did, where did games come into this? Where did the motivation to study games, uh, you know, they're fun. 
And so that's for me a, a big part of it. But then I think that there's, you have, you've written and theorized about this. There's a real theory of change about the role that games can play in education. So I, those are the kind of the two first things I'd love to hear from you is how does your PhD and your own educational experience relate to where you are? And then when and how did games enter the picture? Great. Um, thanks. Uh, so my origin story, I, I, I was not bitten by any radioactive creatures. Um, but... Exactly. That's yeah. <laughs> So it's a more mundane story than that. Um, but uh, as you noted, so my PhD is in zoology. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in ecology. So I, I went to I went to I went to Cornell for my undergraduate. Um, sort of was interested in in biology, generally ecology, environmental studies, kind of as when I when I got there. Um, uh, and uh, quickly became interested in. Um, in the sort of the intersection of mathematics and the early days of computing um, and ecology, um, and so I worked. I worked with in a lab doing sort of lots of data analysis and modeling of ecological systems. Um, I took some courses at Cornell um, uh, in mathematical ecology, which I which I really enjoyed and sort of it melded my interests in in mathematics and um, and ecology. It's 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 noteworthy for those people that know me. <laughs> Um, I, I was I was introduced to a professor there who was, who was a professor in ecology at the time. Simon Levin was a professor at Cornell, uh, who's now a professor at Princeton, and is also my father-in-law. So <laughs> he wasn't at the time. <laughs> okay, but, that's quite a connection. So yes. <laughs> I, we've interviewed Simon. He's on the he's on oh, really? the pod. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can look up my interview with him from maybe a year ago. Okay. Well, um, so yes. So uh, I, I also met his daughter around that time, and and we are we are about to celebrate our thirtieth anniversary. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> so, uh, but I I really I enjoyed a lot of the the, um, the mathematics, but I really started enjoying the intersections of computing and ecology, and so got involved in the early days of computing and um, and modeling of systems, even on personal computers. Um, another sort of pivotal moment was I took I took a version of biology, intro biology at, at Cornell it was called auto tutorial biology. It was, they gave you, they basically gave you a textbook and a room full of TAs and said, by the end of the semester, you need to pass 10 oral exams on biology. Um, and I did that as a freshman. Um, and like, it was such a great learning experience, even though I had passed AP biology and didn't need to take it. I was going to be a bio major, thought I should do this. And it was a great learning experience. So when I was a senior, I became a TA for that course. And, uh, so basically, there the, was a room where you could go and 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 study. There were TAs there who could help you study, and they gave you oral exams as well for for each of the units. Um, and uh, another one of my colleagues who was a TA said, "Hey, you know, I, I think we could use computers to really help people learn some of these topics if we gave them some simulations, um, and that would be really helpful for them." Uh, and so uh, I started working with that person. I said, "Great, I'd love to do that. Think about applications of modeling to education." And so build some models of some systems that became part of the classroom. He got, got some computers donated. I um, mean, this was like, it was it was a big deal just to give you an era, a, a, a sort of a sense of the era. It was a time where getting a color computer was a big deal. So so he had okay. a color computer. Um, I graduated. Um, I'd done some outreach activities in education throughout my career. Um, I worked with the Cornell Greens, and we did a lot of environmental outreach education programs in schools and loved that. So I had to go to grad school in ecology, uh, went to the University of Wisconsin, uh, worked with Tony Ives there, um, and um, again, sort of enjoyed the sort of intersection of computing and modeling and, um, and, and ecology. 
uh, did some some sort of field and lab work on the side, um, but never sort of like really got anything that really was was great there. I think my significant contributions were in were on the theoretical and computational sides. Um, interacted with a lot of like really diverse faculty members across the university. Um, one of whom, um, his name was Bob Jean, who was a professor in entomology and animal behavior. Um, said, "Oh, I, I love the computer models that you're doing for your research. Could you do something for my class?" Um, where my students are struggling on some ideas. Um, and um, that was that was a lab that I developed around the evolution of cooperation based on the prisoner's dilemma. And so I wound up working with him and it turned out that was that became part of my PhD thesis. So the, like 80% of my PhD thesis was sort of straight up science, uh, ecology modeling, um, mostly on um, predator prey, host parasite relationships, evolution um, uh, of, uh, intermediate uh, infectiousness and diseases. And then I had this one part that was on a, on a virtual lab that I had developed and found that that was really where my passion was, was developing that software. And so I, I wound up doing other outreach activities at the University of Wisconsin um, and um, wound up working part-time for a company that was doing computer education, really found uh, enjoyment in that. I decided I should try to get my license while to teach while I was there because I didn't think I was going to become like a, a science researcher. I thought maybe I'd become a, a like a biology teacher or something like that. And I couldn't, I couldn't actually get my license to teach at the time, but I took a bunch of education classes. And when I graduated um, from the university, um, my wife was a veterinarian, uh, got a job in Massachusetts. And I was like, okay, we'll move to Massachusetts. And so I became a, a science teacher here. I was able to get a license. Um, but uh, after one year, I wound up getting a postdoc. Um, NSF at the time had offered postdocs for people who had gotten their PhDs in science and engineering um, who were interested in going into education. It's a really great program that only existed for a few years and produced like phenomenal people, um, myself excluded, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it also produced me. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I really, that was a great program. Uh, I came to UMass Amherst, um, where I now live. Um, and, and work with someone here, uh, Alan Feldman uh, in science education, but also during that time connected with um, Mitch Resnick at the Media Lab at MIT, uh, who was just starting a workshop um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the Santa Fe Institute on um, uh, bringing sort of complex systems out into, into the area schools to help them understand the research of the Institute, um, at the Santa Fe Institute. And so during my postdoc, I connected with him and, and one of his students um, and really found that this was like, this was this was the intersection of my life. It was doing modeling and computing and ecology and other kinds of uh, science studies um, mixed with education. And it was like I was like, this is what I have to do with my life. <laughs> and um, fortunately for me, um, just at that time, there was the first ever sort of education faculty position opening up at MIT. And um, and I would not have thought to apply for that position, but but did. Uh, and, uh, and I was their second choice and got it eventually. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been there ever since. Um, so I came in doing, um, you know, a lot of modeling, simulation, intersections with education. And, um, one of the earliest things we did at the time was, um, uh, one of, one of Mitch Resnick's students, uh, Vanessa Colella had, had, uh, had developed these, um, these wearable badges, they were called at the time. They were based on um, some of the technology that was being developed in Mitch Resnick's lab. 
Um, and the idea with these badges was they had a little LED screen on them that showed a number and they could send and receive infrared, like very short range infrared to each other. And so uh, Vanessa had sort of developed this uh, simulation of a, of, a, of a virus being transmitted across a, a classroom this way. So you'd go around and you'd show your tag to somebody else and it would um, sort of register that you had met that person and unbeknownst to you, there'd be like a virus being passed around. It's sort of a digital version of this um, game that's often played in classrooms with a little test tube where you meet other people by sort of exchanging a drop of fluid from your test tubes and someone has a little mild acid in there. Um, and if you exchange that, you'll eventually sort of see that the acid gets passed around um, and people have gotten infected by, by seeing that um, indicator solution showing that you're, you're acidic at that point. Um, so, so she developed that and then they were like, well, we, we should be able to do other things with these badges um, in addition to this virus game. And so uh, I helped develop a game that we called Big Fish, Little Fish. Um, and Big Fish, Little Fish was a game where uh, some of the people were big fish um, and some of the people were little fish. And the idea, and you had different colors, I think, indicating what you were. Um, and the idea was if a big fish went up to a little fish with its badge, it would eat that little fish. It was actually a school of little fish. Um, there would be a number on its little LED that could indicate how many fish were in its school. And the big school of fish could go up and eat the little school of fish and grow in number as a result of that. Um, and that was actually the, sort of the first game that was a tragedy of the commons game. Um, so, uh, so, and I'll, I'll get, I'd come back to that later, but it was, it was really sort of a way of sort of like thinking about games and simulations coming together and really being active people being active participants inside of a, a, a simulation. Um, the big transition to games from there was, um, uh, I had a colleague, um, Kurt Squire, who's now at UC Irvine, uh, Kurt had, come to MIT while he was still a, a, uh, a PhD student at Indiana University. Um, and um, uh, he was working with Henry Jenkins, who's now at uh, USC. Um, and they, Henry had just started a project called Games to Teach. And Games to Teach was a project focused on uh, games actually for MIT students, um, thinking about how we sort of integrate that across disciplines from literature to you know, civil engineering. And Kurt was going around trying to find people at MIT who would be interested in this, who would be sort of be able to contribute to the project. And he found me, uh, you know, doing nearby work in sort of simulations and things that I might not have called games at the time, but were activities that were related. Uh, and um, and that was really sort of my my I dove deeply into games and find that games are are, are uh, you know if oftentimes people sort of call something a simulation, what well, can I call it a game? Well, there's certain elements I think that are important, and I can go into detail later, but um, you know, I think it's there's actually certain structures inside of games that are useful for sort of setting goals and giving feedback that are really important, that are distinct from what happens in a simulation, which is more like a, I think of it more like a toy, um, where you can sort of create your own sort of senses of accomplishment and goals, but it doesn't sort of provide them to you. Uh, and I thought that was a really important part for, for learning. And it was it just coincided with sort of a, a renaissance in educational games that happened in the early 2000s. Um, and I was able to sort of, um, you know, make some early contributions at that time and, uh, you know, continue to do games and simulations today, you know, now more than 20 years later. Eric, can you talk to me a bit about the impact that you think the the license and education that you obtained has had on your career? I mean, something that 
maybe not everyone knows that. Well, I think many people outside of academia probably don't know this is that to be a college professor, you do not need a formal, any formal training education beyond, you know, maybe one course. I took one course in graduate school on kind of education theory. And that has always struck me as a bit odd since we are educators and you, you do need a license to teach at any other level. I'm curious, uh, how you see that experience playing out and impacting your career subsequent to that experience? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll pick up on your point about like, you know, it, it was a circuitous route that I went. I didn't, I, I sort of knew, I thought about each stage, just the next stage. And then I was like, okay, that's where I want to get to and see where that takes me. Um, so I'd be lying if I thought like that was going to sort of make me a better professor later on. Um, it was just something that I was interested in doing at the time. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I learned a lot about, you know, the way people learn. And, you know, I, I, I take that to certainly to heart in the way I teach my own students now, because so I now I now I'm at MIT and run our teacher education program. And among the things I teach are our MIT students who want to be teachers or who, who are thinking about becoming teachers. Um, and they have they have also have that circuitous path. Like they didn't come to MIT thinking that they might be a teacher. Typically, very, very rarely that happens. Um, and um, and so I think that same sort of thought process that I went through is something that they go through. And I think it's really important to sort of help realize where people's blind spots are. So it's not that people don't want to know those things or don't want to learn those things, but they have blind spots to them. So for many people, it's, you know, for the MIT students, it's, you know, what is it like to like struggle with um, with STEM content? Um, what is it like to sort of not see myself as successful in STEM areas? Um, you know, and those things are highly related to each other. And, um, you know, the idea that you can't just like say things louder or with more clear chalk writings or whatever it is for people to learn, it's sort of like this multi-dimensional space of sort of engaging people in their thoughts and how how um, different theories of learning sort of contribute to the ways that you could, could think about teaching. And um, so for me, that was, it was really, you know, I, I could not be where I was today without that, without that experience. I, on your on your sort of larger point, yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of college faculty are missing something by not having that sort of grounding in any kind of um, un, even understanding the way people learn. You know, even like a, a summer crash course, yeah, exactly, <laughs> in the way yeah, learn and would be really valuable. And and we just don't have that. And you know, in some ways, I think maybe there'll be some sort of pushback in our, in our system at some point where people think about why am I going to university? Why am I paying? You know. $300,000 <laughs> or more to go to a university with people who aren't trained to teach me anything. <laughs> right. I really like your point, Eric, about uh, the trap that we we can fall into thinking, well, if I speak, if I speak louder as if that would be the, the real bottleneck to learning uh, or like write something clear on the chalkboard. Cause we often do conflate what we're doing with what they're, with what they're doing. So, you know, Oh, if I, if I give a lecture for an hour and a half, that I, that my brain sees that as an output, but really it's it's an input, and the output that we need to care about is their education, their learning. But that's invisible uh, often, particularly when you're only thinking about like how much how much content have I delivered. It's easy to think about. I mean, at Dartmouth, we're in ten week terms, so we we feel additionally crunched to like get a certain amount of content yeah. crammed in, and so. I, you know, there's a pressure to, oh, should I give new content in weeks nine or 10 when the students are kind of overwhelmed by that point and they're thinking about a million different things. But I do think it's easy to confuse what you're doing with what they're receiving. And 
I taught a course on environmental communication a couple of years ago. And one of the things I learned was the, the importance of complicating a kind of traditional model of communication that just thinks about this kind of asymmetric relationship between a sender and receiver and communication is effectively about maximizing fidelity between the sender and receiver, which of course matters. Like it does matter. You do want to be organized. You do want to try to present clear examples and enunciate well, but the idea that that's all that, that there is to it uh, is wrong. But I think yeah. the challenge for a lot of us, as you're saying, is that we have blind spots and myself included, I think, well, I could, because it does, it's not clear to us when you have a blind spot, you don't know what you don't know. So it's not, the problem isn't like, well, uh, I could lecture less and do this other thing. The problem is, well, I could lecture less, but then I don't know what I would do, right? Instead of that, because as you said, it's this complex, multidimensional, like psychological, emotional space and people need feedback. That's something that I've kind of been hearing a bit as I've been absorbing your work too. And that's gets us maybe towards the value of games is it's more experiential. There is more feedback that students are getting that I think in a kind of traditional classroom environment, they often don't get nearly as much. I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. Yeah, let me, let me address something you said though, uh, previously about your own teaching, I think, and, and about true, uh, university teaching maybe more generally is, and I, I see this at the at the K-12 level as well. Um, you know, I call it the battle against efficiency um, because, <laughs> Because I, I, a lot of for a lot of my students, they're like, well, I, what I want to do is design something where, um, you know, I'm teaching the maximum amount in the in the time that I have, um, and uh, well, that's that's, and I'll, I'll sort of get back to another sort of reference to this, but like that that doesn't mean they're going to learn the most. Like it might mean you teach the most, right? But it's not going to mean they learn the most in that amount of time. And in fact, in many ways, like doing things that are quote less efficient, um, in terms of like content delivered per minute. Um, is actually going to be more durable and more important in terms of what the students are doing. And I think I think it was my predecessor who said this to me, um, who's a woman named Jean Bamberger. I think I think it was her. I attribute this to her. And she was she gives me an example of where she was talking to some faculty member, and the faculty member said something like, "You know, I did this really great job teaching this lesson in my class. I was like this great lesson that I prepared. And I did this great job teaching, and the students didn't learn anything." And then she says, well, define teaching and learning in those in that sentence. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, what does it mean to teach? What does it mean to learn? Um, uh, you know, if you're if you're if you're up there giving a great lecture and the students like it's ephemeral, they forget it by the end of the week. Um, you know, does it really matter that they learned it um, or what does it matter that they learned? You know, maybe maybe sometimes it's important to sort of have um, have some context for something and it's OK for that to be ephemeral. Um, but then you have to think about what are the learning goals that you want to come out. And I, you know, this this gets into another area now. But you know, we're revisiting these ideas. I think we're being forced to revisit these ideas now, in the in the age of AI, because we're thinking about what do people need to know, um, and what do computers need to know, and what, how do they support them. And so I think it's a potential time for really rethinking, like, what do people need to know, um, and what is the what are the ways that we can get them to to learn those things. Um, uh, in, in terms of in terms of games, um, you know, I think I think one of the things uh, I, I, I attribute the sort of the renaissance in in, um, in educational games that happened in the early two thousands, probably and as I do and most people do to to Jim G, um, who wrote a book called What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy, um, and it was, was released. Very early 2000s, and then there was another, a, a slightly updated edition, maybe 10 years later. 
Uh, and and Jim's argument there, he 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 basically played a lot of video games <laughs> and and thought about you know what what are what are the designers of those games know um, that that educators don't. Um, and think about what do we what can we learn from just looking at the design of video games? And his his idea was not necessarily to sort of make educational video games. In fact, he says um, good learning um, should sort of be based on the same principles as video games, but it doesn't need to look like it. Um, and so, you know, he gives a whole set of principles in that in that book and some of the subsequent writing about you know learning things in context and you know uh, learning new vocabularies and. Uh, applying things in, in different contexts. I mean, there's really great principles that he thinks about there. And I think that really, um, regardless of whether you're sort of thinking about games um, uh, proper or not, there's, there is really a lot of things that people have designed well into those systems that we should be thinking about how we replicate, you know, and some of those things are feedback, as you said, like people get feedback in games and they understand, you know, how they're doing. Um, they have some agency in terms of you know what they're what they're doing in those spaces. Um, you know those are those are really important principles that, regardless of whether I'm designing a video game or or non digital game or just good learning experiences, that those should also emulate those kinds of principles. Yeah, I mean, I I'll need to look this up to make sure I'm getting the attribution right. But I it was either um, Richard Garfield or someone else associated with the popular card game Magic the Gathering, who I once watched a YouTube video on. And he made he was talking about the use of tutorials in games and how it's really important to kind of minimize the activation energy involved in kind of onboarding a game for someone and getting them involved. And he had this quote, and I gotta look this up to see if it's not him, um, that people want to learn, but they don't want to be taught. Uh-huh. It's this idea that it's 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 really hard to actually be a student and be. I feel like actually a faculty sometimes forget this when we don't go to as many talks anymore, and we're often the ones doing the talking. Um, but I've when I've had to go to say like an hour long talk, often like thirty five minutes in, my brain's like, oh right, this is like this is a lot of work to like keep on paying attention to the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And anyway, I think this is a lot of this is heading us towards is the importance of experiential education, experiential learning, which I see. I know I know you've mentioned the term in some of your work, but I've, I, it definitely seems like it's behind a lot of the motivation to do uh, games, to implement games in the classroom. Um, Eric, I'd love to also uh, make sure that I... Uh, before we kind of dive a lot more into the games as we've started to, I'd love to ask you an intermediate question about all the different hats that it seems you wear at MIT and outside of MIT. So I understand that. So you are uh, the head of the department of comparative media studies and writing. That's you, mentioned, you mentioned that you were the kind of the second education uh, or the first or the second education oriented faculty member at MIT. As far as I know, I was the first one hired to do education. There's other people who have done education. Okay. Um, uh, my predecessor, Jean Bamberger, being one of those people, but she was a professor of music who found interest in this. And that's been the way that things have gone there. But uh, but this was the first time a faculty position was created in education. And, and ultimately, I was hired for that. Okay. So as a professor at MIT, or also the director of this organization called the Scheller Center, the Scheller Teacher Education Program. Yep. And then that has a relationship that I'd love to hear you talk about with this education arcade, which I love that name, also at MIT. 
And then you're the co-faculty advisor of this uh, J-Well World Education Lab. I know that's an acronym. Um, can you talk to me a bit about the different hats you wear there and what your role is in promoting this type of approach in these different roles you have? Yeah. Um, so, so I think partially because I'm, I'm now, I'm now one of two uh, education faculty members and, and there's my, and my colleague, um, Mitch Resnick, uh, who's, who's still at MIT and many people will know from scratch, um, and, and a couple other colleagues who, uh, who I work with who do, who do education things now, even though their positions weren't created for those purposes. So there's a nice community there now, but, um, but really, my position is is education. So if you look up education at MIT, I'm, I'm the one who comes up, and I'm the one who deals with a lot of formal education systems. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the time I've been at MIT, you know, there's just been so much um, interest, particularly in STEM education, um, that it's created sort of countless opportunities to sort of get involved in things, and and people across campus, um, you know, seek collaborations and and to work with me and and the and the many people who work in my in my lab. Um, we have about 20, 25 folks in the lab and really like they're they're the ones who do all the work. <laughs> um, really, really great people from um uh you know former teachers who are now do professional development to people who do curriculum design, project management, game design, um, you know, uh engineers who do software engineers who develop software, learning scientists who do research. So really great people. Um but uh, so I came. I came to MIT as this as this faculty member to run the teacher education program, um, which eventually became the Scheller Teacher Education Program, thanks to the generous donations of the Scheller family. Um, uh, that's the program that trains MIT undergrads to be math and science teachers, so they can actually get a license to teach at MIT um, through that program. It's a tremendous commitment from the students to do that. They um, need to take five courses and do 300 hours of student teaching while they're full-time MIT students. Currently, it's wow. not a major or a minor. So this is like fulfill some humanities requirement, but that's about it. Um, and uh, we get, you know, somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen students a year who do the full program and get their license, um, which is really just amazing um, for the students. Um, and uh, And we kind of Put under that umbrella sort of also a lot of our professional development programs um we do work in project-based learning so that we sort of put under the the banner of the, the teacher education program um i mentioned early on that um that you know kurt and henry um uh, were created this project called games to teach but games to teach sort of lost its funding in the uh late uh aughts i guess it was um we created a new entity called the Education Arcade. Um, and the Education Arcade um, was a collaboration amongst all of us at the time. Now all the other folks are gone, so I'm the one left. <laughs> uh, and so that sort of banner has also kind of come um, inside of my lab. Um, and that's sort of our, our banner that we use for um, for our work in games and simulations. Um, you know, I think uh, I think the name has actually worked really well for us. Um, it's it, people recognize it now, but it also sort of creates this sort of like um, uh, mental image of sort of like um, you know education and sort of like the social nature of like a real arcade, um, as well as sort of the, the game space of an arcade sort of coming together. And I think that's worked really well for us. That that uh, that name. 
Um, and I, then I serve on lots of like sort of like committees and things like that in MIT. JWell has been our place for for a lot of our K twelve um, organized efforts at MIT. Specifically, we've taken on some large international efforts through through JWell. Um, so we had a large project in India um, called Clicks, um, where we worked with uh, about a thousand schools across India with a partner, um, uh, the Tata Institute for Social Sciences in Mumbai, um, to really introduce new pedagogies through technology in schools across India and in government schools. Um, we have another project currently in Belize, um, helping to develop a, a pilot STEAM school there. So we've done a lot of inter large international collaborations through that organization, and that's been really, uh, I think, a great addition. Um, what, we didn't really have the capacity to take on those large initiatives when I came to MIT, and now we do. That's The focus of that is now switching to a different office in, in our open learning um, at this point. Um, but that same effort will sort of take a new, slightly new form um, to be able to take on sort of large, I think both domestic and international initiatives. Oh, I should mention comparative media studies and writing, which is my home department. So I actually came to MIT and for many years, I was in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Um, as I said, I was the first education faculty member hired. They were like, I don't know where to put this position. <laughs> and so, uh, so Urban Studies and Planning said, well, you know, education is sort of an important urban issue. And Jean had worked with folks in Urban Studies and Planning. And that's where the position was originally created. Um, and really wonderful faculty members there, wonderful leadership that really helped foster my career early on. Um, and, and past tenure, um, so really great folks there who I've who I've really benefited from. But when I started doing the games work, that's where uh, games at MIT is in comparative media studies, um, and so I, I got another appointment there. And um, at some point, switched them. I felt like I was doing more stuff with the folks in comparative media studies. So I keep my primary appointment in comparative media studies and writing now, um, and then a secondary one in, in urban studies and planning. But um, shortly after I moved my appointment, I became head of that department. And so that's where we have everything from, you know, games exists there um, to, um, uh, you know, sound media to, to, to mixed reality, um, to people studying, um, you know, uh, political media, um, you know, really across the board, different kinds of sort of um, both production of and theory of and impact of different kinds of media. Okay, that's all. That was a joke. And I'm currently I'm that's... currently term head of literature as well, but I won't go into that one. <laughs> okay, that'll be the follow up interview we do in like two years. Um, so Eric, I've been uh reading through a bit of this book you wrote. You co-authored with several colleagues of yours, Resident Games, and I was also listening to a podcast from your website where you talk about kind of the main subject of this book that I'd like to talk to you about now. This idea of design principles for effective game design. I like this idea of a design principle. In my own field, there's a famous set of design principles for effective group function from my former PhD advisor, Lynn Ostrom. And so I've, I've loved this idea of kind of a, a design principle as kind of a, a thing to think about, but not something that's overly prescriptive and says you have to do exactly this, but it's more like you should think about this as you implement that. So could you talk to me a bit about this work in, in this book and how you view, because uh, I think a lot of our listeners are, this is an obvious question for them to think is like, well, how do I kind of, how do I implement some of this in my own work? How should I think about what is a good game? What is a bad game? How do we go about implementing some of these ideas? Yeah. I mean, so we have, we have kind of the four, four big ideas 
Um, and I can talk about a few of them. Um, uh, and then we have sort of a, a bunch of other sort of like principles that we think are important for thinking about them. And, and I'll, I'll cite one of those as well. Um, I'll start I'll start there. I think one of, the, one of the ones that I think folks that resonates with a lot of folks who are designers um, are one of the co-authors on the, on the book, Scott Osterweil. He has his Four Freedoms of Play. Um, and I'll, I, I want to try to remember them, <laughs> get them right. Um, the the freedom to experiment, so that when we when we're doing when we're when we're learning or playing, so he calls them the four freedoms of play, but he also describes them as the four freedoms of learning as well. So freedom to experiment, I can do, I can try different things when I'm um, when I'm when I'm when I'm learning. Um, uh, freedom of identity, um, so as I'm learning, I can think of myself as different people. The freedom to fail is, I think, one of his most important ones. Um, so it's the it's this idea that um, when we when we when we're learning, we need to have the ability to fail. Sometimes sometimes we actually purposely fail to sort of test boundaries, learn about things, um, but we need to sort of have a, a low enough risk where we feel like we can fail. Otherwise, we sort of won't shoot high enough. Um, and the last one is freedom of effort. Um, so when we're when we're learning or playing. We're not sort of playing at 100% capacity the whole time. We sort of have ebbs and flows in our in our cycles, and I think that's um, important to sort of build into a lot of experiences where we're not sort of like at maximum capacity all the time. Hmm. So those, I think those are those are those stick with a lot of folks. The, the four freedoms of play. Um, I think another element is um, is experimental learning, which you sort of mentioned earlier. Um, that we don't think of games as like a black box where you sort of go in one side and you don't know something and you come out of the black box and the other side and you know something. Um, the game is an experience um, and really learning happens from combining that experience um, with both reflection and sort of other sorts of sets of resources that you might have. Um, so that means, um, you know, there's this, we often think of the, 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 the action reflection cycle as an important part of the experiential learning where the when we kind of go into this thing where we have the experience of the game, it might be a very difficult experience. It's not, I can talk about that later, but games are not things that are just frivolous fun. Games are hard um, mm -hmm. by design. Uh, and, um, and so you have that hard experience and where you learn something is from reflecting on that experience on the other side, not from necessarily just playing the game. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's important for, for designers of games to think about that. Um, that they are designing um, experiences that are meant to be reflected upon. Um, and um, and it's important for people who are implementing it to think about that it's not, don't just give people the game and sort of have them go away, but you have to think about how you integrate that into your other sort of learning experiences as well. Okay. So some of this sounds like it's kind of, I've, I've heard this term actually from friends of mine who are in business, like meeting people where they are. As opposed to assuming, like starting where you're from, and assuming that they're just going to come to you. It's like, no, people uh, have these ebbs and flows. And so you need to think about that. Another way, I mean, you, this is a lot of this is about human psychology, it seems to me. And you also need to yeah. not assume, like, okay, let's just make it as hard as possible and they'll just come to us. It's like, no, you need to go and make sure that you start with something that's. And again, it's so interesting that this, there's some ways in which it seems like game designers and video game designers understand this and games that we really like do this very well I and mean, there's a it's funny I've, I've gotten back into video games in the last like five to seven years i promise this is not the reason i wanted to talk to you just about like <laughs> squaring the circle of my own personal professional life but but it's it's fascinating that a lot of well done video game design if there's a level it'll start with something it'll give you the premise 
the first thing you do is like, oh, you need to you need to do this action. It's very easy. You need to press one button with a little bit of timing involved. And that just establishes the type of new thing you're going to perceive in that level. And they always do it. And it, but it, I, it, I didn't see it until I, it was pointed out to me. I just enjoyed it because it was kind of holding your hand to increasing levels of complexity based on the same premises that establishes in a more easy environment at the beginning. Yeah. And, and we, so, uh, you know, we talk a lot about in this, both in, in educational games as well and games more generally. And then in education, there's this idea of the zone of proximal development by Vygotsky. You know, it's this idea that like you have a set of things that you can do like that are easy, like, um, and, the, and those are, those are, uh, you know, you can do without any help. And then there's a whole set of things that on an outer sphere where that are just too difficult. They're beyond your expertise. Um, and then you have this sort of like sweet spot in the middle, which is um, the things that you can do with some help. Um, mm -hmm. They're sort of just out of reach, but with a little bit of help, you can do them. Uh, and the idea is that's where the best learning happens. And, you know, we also think that's where the most fun happens um, and things that are sort of just out of reach for you. That with a little bit of help, sometimes it's trial and error. Sometimes it's that little tutorial where I picked up on something. Sometimes it's about understanding that new mechanic and then thinking about how to apply it in a new way. Um, sometimes it might be talking to my peers. Sometimes it might be an online community. There's all different ways we sort of learn those things in a, in a, in a game. Um, but it's about keeping those things just out of reach and then we get them. And like that sense of accomplishment when you actually do that is amazing. You know, that's that's where fun happens. So we we call that, you know, um, we use the term hard fun. Seymour Papert used that phrase, who, who was a professor at MIT. He found that kids were having fun, not in spite of what they were doing being hard, but because it was hard. So they'd wrestle with challenging problems. They do difficult things. And when they overcome those challenges, they have a sense of accomplishment. That's where fun happens. And I think that's what actually, that's what games do. They don't, it's not about, you know, rewards and and stars and badges, but it's about sort of actual accomplishments for doing things that you thought were too difficult before that you can actually do now. This leads me to a question about possible skepticism of the games approach. There was a Ezra Klein podcast. I'll have to look up this author. It's on a book about gamification. Well, there's two questions I have and they're related. One is... Um, is well, you could see some people responding to this kind of dismissively saying, well, games are fun, but fun is what you do in your free time. Fun is a hobby, right? It's like riding your bike. It's like, you're just trying to make your hobby into your career. And I understand why. And this is like, this is not me saying this to you, but it's like, I think a lot of us kind of who think about these things here. And it, so it's unrealistic to really think that something could both be fun and genuinely, I don't know if I'd put this in quotes, like economically productive. That's trying to have your cake and eat it too. One concern. The other one is kind of what you just mentioned is, and this is something that I struggle with a bit in my own field, where the use of public goods games is quite popular and trying to understand human behavior. It's that part of my field is kind of adjacent to behavioral economics, which uses experimental games all the time to study human behavior. And there's a movement within my field to also try to use those games to actually change behavior in the real world, which overlaps a little bit with the use in education. You're trying to, there's kind of a behavioral change component. One In one context, you're trying to help students learn. In my field, the context is often, well, we're going to run in this kind of water use game with a bunch of farmers to actually try to change their behavior. And the main critique 
of these types of experimental games is the critique you hear of experiments generally is their lack of of generalizability or or kind of ecological validity. It's like you, you're creating a very constrained artificial space. And how much can you actually generalize from that space? Maybe there's this overlaps a bit with a kind of fun can't be productive critique. Um, right. It's fun. You get them together. You're in your field site. You've got your respondents playing some game, but does that actually, can we actually learn anything beyond that context? So I'm curious um, if you've been exposed to some of these critiques and yeah. how you respond. Yeah, so let me, let me start off with the first one about that learning can't be fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> Put it that uh, way, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, first of all, I want to I want to say like I we we very distinctly differentiate gamification from learning games. Um, gamification is sort of the application of like sort of like game superficial game mechanics to sort of like unrelated tasks. Um, so that's, exactly. that's sort yes. of giving a sense of like, well, I, what games are about are reward systems. And so I'm going to give people reward systems and that's going to help them learn. And I, I definitely disagree with that. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think, you know, we've seen examples where that can work, but we also know like, you know, people can get rewards and they'll be encouraged to do something for a little while. And then as soon as those rewards stop, they stop doing the thing. Um, so if your goal is like, I need to get somebody like you need to like pass this test so you can, you know, move on. And we don't actually care if you remember anything like maybe sort of some reward system will get people to sort of do that thing and move on. Um, but for the most part, um, giving people rewards to do things is not a is not a, a system to sort of like to change, as you were just talking about in your second question. Um, you know, it really has to be sort of about them wanting to do those things and under and, and like motivating them to do that. I think. Um, you know, I'll, I'll refer back to, again, to another quote I give to Scott, which is, you know, we get people coming to us and saying, like, I want you to help us um, make math fun for kids. And we're like, no, no, what we want to do is show kids that math is fun. Um, and, you know, as an academic, if like, if you walk around the hallways, like what you'll probably find is people, people would describe a lot of the, like, maybe not all their work. They do a lot of administrative work. <laughs> But there's a lot like when they get to the core part of the, their academic jobs, like that should be fun for most people. They they right. enjoy that. Like they'll do that in their spare time. Um, and um, and, you know, we're privileged as, as faculty who get to do that. But I think that that, you know, it's a representative representation of like what we can do. Like we can make learning fun. We can make hard things, discovering things, learning things. We can make that fun by by sort of showing people what's fun about those what those pursuits, you know, what is fun about math? How do we actually show people that 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 is fun? And the idea is that they take that not so that just the five minutes that they're doing the game to make it fun, but it give them a, sort of a mindset like I can make puzzles in the world. You know, I think in many cases, um, you know, when we think we have success with things. It's like people took something that they did in the game and they now were able to like view that outside of the. I applied that to some unrelated problem. I was able to think about how that's a fun like problem space to think about. Genetics is a really interesting thing to sort of like create puzzles out of. Or I was able to understand how you know thinking about math puzzles was sort of an important thing for me, and I was able to sort of solve some problem in my life or in my in my job. You know, those things are are fun um, when you sort of have the skills around that and the mindset to do that. So, in my mind, like like I actually think people say, well, does that mean all learning needs to be games? No, no. But I do think that all learning should be fun. <laughs> Um, and by fun, I mean that's sort of that's hard fun. It's like I'm I'm giving people challenging problems. I'm having them do things that are difficult, 
Um, and and they're but they're having senses of accomplishment because they're they're learning those things, they're um, overcoming those challenges, and they're applying them in ways that are satisfying to them. So yeah, I think I actually think all learning should be fun, <laughs> um, but not not in the gamification way because I think that's counterproductive. Um, the second question about sort of behavior change, we get we do get a lot of people, and I I think learning games and behavior change games are a bit different. Um, okay. You know, and in fact, um, in many cases. Um, learning something doesn't change your behavior. So like we're working on some uh, on some climate change games now with some folks um, and you're just understanding like the, the, you know, different sort of behaviors or policies and their impact on, on, um, on climate won't necessarily change people's behaviors about those things. So those things we have to maybe learn, maybe understanding that as a prerequisite for behavior change, but doesn't necessarily mean that I will change my behavior. And there's a famous, famous study with kids um, and they've, they've done different kinds of things where they ask, they teach kids that eating fruit is better than eating cookies. And you can give a quiz to all the kids. You say, which is better eating cookies or eating fruit? And they'll say eating fruit is definitely better. And then you give them a cookie and you give them fruit and you ask them to choose and every kid's going to choose cookies. Right. <laughs> they know that like intellectually, they know that cookies are better or are, are worse than, 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 than fruit. Um, but they pick it every time. And it's the same thing with behavior change. I can know that it's this is the wrong thing to do, but changing my behavior around that is a different thing. And so that means, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what are the, what's the social context around that? What really are my, what are my, my barriers to change? Is it, um, is it, you know, is it something about my identity that I need to rethink? Is it something about that's going to be um, uh, inconvenient for me? How can I address that in that space? And so it's about, and you can do that. I think some of that through games, um, you know, like we talk about, like, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of make a, a game with kids about, um, uh, you know, eating as unhealthy as possible? <laughs> you know, what's the impact of that? Um, you know, maybe that's a way to sort of explore some of these ideas. Um, so I think you need to be able to think about what what is really sort of the, the barrier to change for behaviors. And in many cases, it's not at least solely the sort of understanding of the problem, but rather other aspects as well. Yeah, I think it's very powerful. It reminds me of uh, a study I once saw about the impacts that watching like very charismatic nature documentaries has, and it doesn't change people's behavior. You just want to listen to more David Attenborough, and it's just you enjoy it because it's amazing to watch, but it's not like you're going to recycle more necessarily or try to minimize your waste as much. And I think this this challenge of, I think it cuts across lots of behavioral spheres of you can almost use the intellectualization of a problem as a way to avoid really dealing with it kind of in a more uh, emotional or some kind of more uh, uh, valid way. I think it's something that a lot of us need to think about. When we think about like behavioral change for ourselves and other people. So Eric, can we talk a bit about the game that led me to you? Cause this will also be of particular interest to our listeners. And I will, I will say up front that I'm very interested in promoting this game within the comments community. I think it could be right. very valuable to a lot of us. So uh, count me in. Can you talk a bit about um, this specific game? So this is a model of the tragedy of the commons game. Uh, I don't think I need to provide much of introduction to this for our audience, but um, it is, I put it in, I'll be interested in how you think about this. I put it in the class of a game that I generally call like public goods games. Yeah in the sense that there is some kind of, there is a collective interest and there is an individual interest and those are different. 
And so you have what we refer in the commons field as a collective action problem where there's a problem of motivating people to act in the in the group interest when it would be better for them individually not to. Could you talk about the origins of this game, your motivations for it, and how the game actually implements some of these ideas and how it's innovative? Yeah, I mean, so I'll go back to some of my my prior work as some of my um, initial thoughts into this space. So I mentioned... Um, as part of my PhD work, I did this um, this uh, set of simulations around um, the evolution of cooperation based on the prisoner's dilemma. So um, that was sort of my early sort of game theory education um, work. Um, and that that lab still you can find it online. <laughs> uh, I had it updated at some point. It was like it was based on Java applets from the 1990s, and now it actually can run in a regular web browser. But the the, the lab, other than that, is exactly the same as it was. I don't know, uh, 26, 8, 28 years ago, something like that, that I created it. Um, so I was interested in sort of that space. Um, I came to MIT and, and I, I, I I mentioned this sort of this work on the badges um, that were sort of this uh, technology that was meant to sort of create whole class simulations. Um, I think, you know, the, the lab that I mentioned that I did was um, something that was really done by yourself. You sort of did a lab, you stepped through it. There was lots of like places to sort of think and do things on your own and and um, and sort of a constructivist way, but it was it was you know pretty linear and um, um, and solitary. Uh, and as I as I sort of saw the this this simulation of the virus game, um, you know, I was really excited about sort of the social nature of it. I think it's a really important to sort of recognize um, both the social nature of learning um, and also um, as we're talking about things like behavior change. I think that's also really important to think about the social context and social system that you're embedded within. Uh, and so we created this game that was called Big Fish, Little Fish um, at, at the time. And the idea was, as I said, you had a, a set of big fish and the big fish could eat the little fish. Each one was sort of a school of fish. And it was really a tragedy of the commons game. What happens is the big fish walk around the classroom and they tag a, a little fish. And that means they they hold up their badge and there's some equation that they don't know that sort of has the, uh, the, the size of the big fish school and the size of the little fish school and decides how many fish get eaten and how many fish sort of ultimately come out of that on the other side. Um, and pretty quickly what happens is all the little fish are gone. Like the big fish have just decimated the little fish pool. And it's a it's a basic tragedy of the commons problem. And the, the, at that point, the, the fish, the big fish sort of get together and say like, how can we, you know, how can we not do this next time? <laughs> um, and this is, it relates back to, to Scott's freedom to fail. The idea is that we give them some sort of, I don't, I don't tell them at the beginning, like I want you to balance this system. I let them figure out like, hey, like unless you work together, like everybody's going to die. <laughs> like, cause what happens is once the little fish run out, obviously then everybody, nobody has anything to eat and the big fish eventually also die out. Um, and so then it's up to them to figure out, well, now we, we, we didn't succeed. So let's work together and figure out some system. And so they come up with all sorts of crazy things like caps on, on how much they can eat, or they have like some sort of spiral system so that like the big fish are rotating in one way and the little fish are rotating in a different way so that you're typically getting, you know, medium-sized schools feeding off of medium-sized schools. And if your school gets too small, it'll sort of like we'll get to the feed soon. So they come up with all sorts of systems like that. And I think it was great to sort of have them be creative in the ways that they both um, create those systems as well as the way they enforce those systems. Because in many cases, you know, you can have cheaters. Um, and it's a question of like, how do you detect cheaters and how do you how do you punish cheaters? Or is that something you want to do is punish cheaters? The problem with that one was, and we made, so we made that, game uh, on these, this custom hardware, and then also dating myself, we made it on Palm Pilots. 
um, so teachers could download this and use it in places. Um, the problem with both of those versions was um, that the little fish didn't have a lot of agency. <laughs> Their only goal was avoid being eaten by big fish. <laughs> Um, and so they could run away, they could try to hide in the classroom, and that was fun, but it, there was just not a lot of agency on their part of what to do. So several years ago, when we decided to sort of recreate that game, we thought it would be a fun thing to do on, you know, on smartphones, principles being like, we want people to be active and moving around in the classroom, because we think that's a really important part of this. We want to sort of like set up a challenge where people sort of think that the, the challenge is easy to sort of like, I want to just go fishing and create and get fish. Um, to have some uh, an easy point of failure and then sort of have some system where people can sort of discuss and, and try to balance the system in some way. Um, and so we decided we really, we couldn't have people be little fish um, because there's just no, not enough to do there. It, you know, it doesn't, as we think about our own game design principles, it doesn't sort of have enough of those sort of sets of principles for the little fish. So we decided everybody should actually be big fish or fishermen, really it's the same thing. Um, and um, and give them those choices. And so we decided in that space also to give them more choices within there. Like now you can like buy a small boat or a medium boat, you can do research. So there's different sort of interesting decisions and um, uh, that's Sid Meier's sort of uh, the famous game Civilization. That's what he sort of coined for like, that's what makes games great is a set of interesting decisions. So we give people those interesting decisions that they can make individually. And then they get up and they sort of play the game by walking around the classroom. Um, in this case, the, the the fish that they can fish from or, or eat, however you think about it, are sort of these QR codes that are spaced around the room. Um, so they do get a chance to sort of do things like see how many people are at each space. So that might matter to me. Like I might want to go places where people, where there's fewer people in the classroom. Um, I might uh, I might even sort of like bluff people. <laughs> And sort of go someplace and and not fish or or um, or sort of uh, just pretend I'm looking or something like that and see what's going on over there. So there's sort of this sort of social nature of sort of seeing what's going on, interacting with other people in real space, um, and I think that's that's been critical to the to the success because there's so much involved in the sort of follow up conversations um, that happens between each round of these games. And that reflects the point you made earlier about the need for reflection for real learning. It's kind of like exercise, like you need to do the exercise and then you need breaks to actually get stronger. You need to do the reflection to actually get the learning to consolidate. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and I think, again, the fact that we've had a collective experience, I think, makes that reflection even easier. So we can go away and we can have solitary experiences um, and we can try to talk about what we did that was similar to each other or different from each other. Um, but I think the nice thing about these things is that there is some collective experience, but there's also an individual experience. I made individual choices. I always ask, like, who has the most fish uh, that they've collected this round? Who, who didn't collect any? You know, what was your strategy? Um, mm -hmm. I try to call out some of those things so people have some sense of, like, I'm a unique person. I was able to make my choices in this space, but we still had a collective experience that we can talk about. Yeah. And speaking of the QR code specifically, I mean, as I mentioned towards the beginning of the interview, I found that to be one of the most uh, kind of empowering parts of the game. As I felt like as a teacher, it, it gave me a lot of like design options, right? Because it, it's not, and you have a version of the game that doesn't use the QR codes, yeah. which I thought about, but didn't explore. And just to be clear for the listeners, right? The difference is that what the software lets you do is you can set up i you call the software calls them stations i think i thought of them as basically different fisheries although yeah. you could also think of them as like different launch points but there are different populations available right so you're creating like different fish populations 
And you can then assign each fishery a QR code, right? Which are these boxes that people scan. And then what I had my students do, which was following the advice that comes along with the documentation for the game is uh, you basically kind of start with open access where you have, I created like, I think five fisheries within with like five QR codes each. So I printed like 25 pieces of paper and I actually put each, um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have, and the, and the structure of my classroom helped a lot where there's different mobile, I have basically mobile tables where you can kind of move people around. It's not like stadium seating or whatever, which I think would make it much more difficult. And so I had the students essentially free to move around anywhere they wanted and scan a QR code whenever they wanted. And one of the hard parts about these games is always, you're always thinking, well, is it going to be too easy? Is it going to be too hard? Yeah. Right? Like is the collective action problem going to be so easy that it's trivial because they're just always going to cooperate or is it going to be too hard? And like the game's over in 30 seconds because they've annihilated yeah. everything. And I thought it was going to be too easy, except that in the, in the open access, they destroyed everything within like 10 minutes, <laughs> which of course is nice because it sets it up to, it sets up the next game to be like, okay, what should we do different? So we had this nice reflection where, you know, because every time they scan a QR code, they're, they're taking some fish. And so they're bopping around the room, scanning different QR codes with their phones, with the software on their phones. Uh, and so this open access resource or really five different open access resources that I created all go away. And then we had this reflection and the students, again, like very satisfyingly, because again, in these reflections, you're always kind of like, you want them to get to a certain place, but you want them to get there without you just telling them, oh, and by the way, we should do this. And so it was very nice when several of them said, well, we could have just different students at different tables and they are the ones that get to use the fishery QR codes for that table. And my response was, of course, yes, why don't we try that, right? Because it's a lot of the classes about environmental property rights. And so that's that's what we're doing in effect, right? Each group has the rights to a particular fishery or table in the classroom. And then we did that. And then the final thing I did was I, I allowed them to kind of some mobility of fishers where I gave each fishery, each group, two QR codes from other fishery, like other groups. Because that's something I think is not as much done in some of these games is also think about both intra and intergroup dynamics at the same time. I think that's, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think that's one of like the frontiers for a lot of this stuff is it's it's thinking about kind of complex social dynamics. Anyway, that was a lot of fun because suddenly the groups were kind of sending parlays over to different groups saying, hey, do you have our QR code? Because we have yours. Uh -huh. And trying to basically see how they could cooperate across groups, which was a lot of fun. But it was just a lot of fun to think about just how this one new technology just really radically changed the design space and made it much more of an interpersonal exercise versus them just kind of being on their phones, which I, th I, I still think there'd be value there, but them kind of being on their phones and it only being through the digital medium as opposed to moving their bodies and thinking about the physical space and the meaning of physical space in the classroom felt like a much more immersive educational experience. So it was yeah, great. I, yeah. Let me let me. I'll, I'll make a few comments there. So one is like the design that you just described is not something that I had envisioned when we created this, and that's that's a wonderful thing to see. Is that um, and but what we did try to do was think about ways that it becomes flexible, um, and um, you know, both because it sort of allows teachers to sort of be creative and think about different ways to use this game, 
um, you know, to structure the classroom, how many stations you're going to have, what, you know, are there going to be duplicates in different places, you know, all those kinds of things that sort of become, you know, medium which you can sort of mold without having to sort of change the underlying sort of digital structure. Um, so that's, that's great to see. And that is definitely, we just tried to design that flexibility. I think the, the sort of getting up and getting around is also really important, sort of like, I think we try to think about like, maybe you should spend something like 20 to 30% of your time looking down at your phone and 70, 80% of your time looking mm. up and talking to other people and sort of interacting with them. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of like the try to balance we try to think about here um, where the, the digital structure is, is really, there's a model there that's an interesting sort of system that you're trying to create, but really the, the, the interesting interactions happen from the the play the interactions between the players looking at each yes. other talking to each other looking at their accounts seeing who's where in the classroom um and 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 then that's just provides that's clay for people to mold um it also i think is inviting to 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 teachers and educators who who don't normally think of themselves as wanting to use sort of digital things in their classroom because it feels much more like moderating an activity that's non-digital so like it's, you know, I'm mostly talking to people, you know, I have to start and stop things and we're working on sort of a better dashboard for teachers to make that easier. Um, but most of the time I'm like, I'm looking around the classroom, talking to the students, you know, telling them to, you know, move around, interact in different kinds of ways. I don't necessarily need to make the software sort of do particular things for them to interact. They can sort of structure those things themselves. And so um, and that's, that, that I think opens us up to an opportunity to a lot of educators who wouldn't normally consider themselves as, Sort of advocates for 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 sort of digital certainly digital games in their own classes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just as we want to kind of lower the activation energy for students to to kind of onboard a game and get involved in it. There's the challenge of the activation energy of getting teachers yeah on board with this, and so yeah. that kind of leads me to another question I have for you. It's all based on this idea that you're creating essentially a knowledge commons, right? You're you're creating a public good. Right, because there's you're not restricting access. I I I didn't know you when I downloaded this game. I was able to use it. It benefited me. Um. So both of these questions have to do with your relationship between your work and folks not not associated with you. So, how do you think about the public good nature of what you're doing? And I've I've thought about this a fair amount in academia generally because there is a fair amount of fragmentation. We do. It would be helpful if there was more coordination in the production of public goods for both teaching and research. So the people didn't need to reinvent the wheel so much, but that suffers from the same collective action dynamics as the ones that we're modeling say in this game, right? There's a incentive for each of us to free ride on the efforts of others to create something like this game. The benefits are not fully internalized to the people that produce the public goods. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. And then relatedly how, you know, how do you hope that other folks will engage with this material? If, if if a listener thinks, okay, like, should I just go to this website and download this game? Is that kind of the the main model for engagement that you, you have in mind for someone to kind of find you on the web and then kind of go from there? And then eventually, of course, interview you on their podcast is, <laughs> is the final step. Yes. So I'm curious how you think about both of those dynamics in terms of the production and how that works and also engagement. Yeah, I mean, so pr production is, I mean, I'll say, so at, at this point in my career, you know, I feel like, I feel like to some extent, it's my obligation to create these resources for other people to use. 
Um, you know, I'm I'm a tenured professor at a at a at sort of a, a a STEM institution that people sort of look to for its leadership. Um, you know, it's it's I, I'm obligated, I think, to sort of create these things and share them with other people. Um, and I find that really rewarding. That said, um, it's hard. Um, like, uh, so creating things is easy. Sustaining things is hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so lots of academics create things and put them on the web and people use them. And then like some library or browser or something like that changes. And then you don't have the resources to update it and then that thing dies. Right. Um, uh, and so that the sustainability of the sort of the academically produced um, resources is, is that's a hard problem. Yes. Um, we created we created a nonprofit a number of years ago called the Learning Games Network that was sort of designed to sort of create and tackle some of that challenge. Um, and in doing so, realized how challenging that problem really is. <laughs> uh, so we took some of the things we work on at MIT, created this nonprofit. It was able to sort of take in you know, resources to help sort of sustain some of those things. But even that was actually really, really difficult. Um, you know, there's just the the sense that like there's some revenue from somewhere that we like, you know, if I charged, I don't know, uh, imagine like I charged $10 a year for, for a class to sort of like be able to use this. So it's probably something that people would just pay and we could have some money, but like that process of taking in money like that into MIT and like process that and mm-hmm. it's very difficult, um, not worth our time, in fact. So, you know, some of these one this game in particular, one of the things I've tried to think about was I guess, what's a really low cost way of sustaining this? So if, when we designed the infrastructure for this game, we're like, I actually don't want it to run on a server. I want it to be a serverless technology. So it uses it uses Google's Firebase. Um, uh, which is way easier for us to maintain um, than than you know a traditional web server. Um, so so that's something that we try to think about is how do we sustain these at very low cost to ourselves because you know just the ecosystem of being able to support and sustain um, these technologies is very difficult. And we've had we've had technologies that you know, we've had millions of dollars invested into them and learned a lot and did research and you know hundreds of thousands of people use them and then you know flash dies and. <laughs> And then we don't mm-hmm. have the money to reboot the thing. So, um, so that's a really it's a really challenging problem. And I think, you know, NSF has tried to tackle this in some ways. There's been some meetings and things like that. And there's the SBIR kinds of grants that sort of help people sort of do some technology transfer out of the university. Um, but yeah, you know, we're not talking about for the most part in educational technologies. These aren't like multi million dollar ideas. <laughs> They're things that like are going to continue to sort of struggle in this sort of long run. Um, so I think it's still a challenging problem to figure out how we how we sort of be able to sustain those technologies. Yeah, I think that's really generalizable, this idea that it's much easier to start something than to sustain it. I mean, yeah. I, part of that has to do with the kind of novelty bias in funding circles, it seems to me. I mean, this is beyond yeah. academia. In the field of conservation development, it's always, well, we'll fund you, fund this new project for three years to work in this local community. And it's like, well, okay, we're not gonna have solved every problem. <laughs> Yep. In these next three years, let alone solve them to the extent that they don't require any more attention. But there's just, it's much hard, and scientifically, right? It, it's hard to get funding for longitudinal overtime data yep. because it's like, well, didn't you study this problem for five years in this place? And you and you want to say yes, but a lot of the bottlenecks to understanding our, our these systems is understanding how they really change over more than five-year increments. Yep. So I think it's, it's just a, have you... Has that specific issue come up for you, kind of a funding novelty bias? 
absolutely. Like, you know, we, you know, I mean, NSF typically wants to sustain, like to, to, to develop new things or sometimes do research. They'll sometimes fund longitudinal research, but not sort of the idea of sort of technology transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, again, with, with, with the exception of SBIRs, but, you know, the, it's hard. It's not, a, it's not an easy business to get into. Um, yeah. And it's typically true of foundations as well. You know, we can get lots of foundations interested in our work to create something new. And they would like, they put it even as a stipulation, you need to find some way to sustain this. Well, that's, you know, it's, that's really hard. Like, it's, it's one thing to say that you want us to sustain this. It's another thing to try to figure that out. We did. In one of the in one of the games we developed um, with uh, with resources from the Gates Foundation, we actually they provided us with a consultant that did try to help us figure that out to how, to, how we would um, how we'd sustain it, and we actually came up I think some really good ideas and good leads, but again in the end in the end it didn't happen. Uh, well, bravo to you for doing this though. I agree with the sense of obligation you described to produce more public goods once you don't have to worry as much about individual interest. There's actually this concept from collective action theorem a field called the privileged group who has enough influence to actually provide for a public good without other people needing to contribute as much on their own so it's kind of a, a new a new twist on this idea of privilege and how it can be used to actually help a group eric moving forward what are what are some of your goals for the future do you think about obviously sustaining some of these programs are there other initiatives that you think about uh starting what do you think? How do you think about the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, so um, in the next five or 10 years, I will I will stop being some of those administrative roles that I just mentioned. <laughs> and uh, and I am interested in sort of thinking about, you know, I, you know I, I think I think about some research projects that we're interested in doing. But I also I feel like there are things that I just would like to sort of create and share that I feel like are based on lessons that we've learned. That I'd love to just have people can go to our website and use those kinds of things um, that that don't necessarily have a, a, a specific research agenda behind them, but um, but that provide some sort of sense of um, tools that people find useful. And I think these games are something that we continue to invest in. So, um, uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to have some uh, you know, discretionary resources that we can sort of dedicate to these things. And so this is something that I'm 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 doing right now. And in fact, right after this call, I will be on with the team to talk about their next sort of set of games. Um, I, you know, we, we've talked about different kinds of ideas. Like, you know, now we have, you know, we have one on viruses. We have one on, on, uh, uh, on, on tragedy of the commons. Um, you know, we have another one that that will release soon. That's really a math game about sort of data analysis. And you know, so we're making things in sort of different kinds of spaces. Um, I think at some point I might think about, well, if, if there's a like, if there's a really interesting sort of like sustainability, might be sort of like a, a particular focus area. So how can we make sort of a, a a set of games on sustainability. It was something that we had thought about when we made the, the fishing game was to actually make a, a series of related games that sort of addressed related topics in the area. You know, some of them might be the, you know, just other, other ideas of, of, of common goods and, and, uh, and the commons um, and how we sort of make a, a series of games around those. So part of that is like listening to people and thinking about what, what people will use and what they're interested in. And part of it is about, a lot of it is student driven um, by, by our students who do most of the software development. Um, and so what are they interested in doing? I, I like to really engage them in the process. So um, so I definitely sort of see myself continuing to sort of be able to support this line of, of, of games, um, have people use them, have people give feedback on them and, and, and continue to grow them. I think it's just a really lightweight way of sort of sharing things with other people. And um, and then for that matter, I enjoy I enjoy running these games. They're fun. Um, mm-hmm. You said you said earlier, in fact, I, I forgot to comment on this. 
you said, I'm a little worried that like students are just going to like co cooperate and, 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 and it's going to be too easy on the first try between the sort of the former game that I ran big fish, little fish and, and this newer one, I've probably played this game with tens of thousands of people altogether. And that has not happened once. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> now I, I, and it makes sort of an analogy. I, you know, I said, we also have this virus game and I haven't played the virus game um, since the pandemic. I think it's a little too soon for a lot of people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and it was a game that deals with things like, you know, incubation time and probability of transmission and a whole bunch of things that uh, immunity, a whole bunch of things that people sort of like just know today because we've had so much popular press on uh, on, on the pandemic. Um, I'm interested to see whether people sort of like solve that problem much faster than they did before because they understand these things and to look for them. Um, maybe there'll be some revelation like that, you know, now that we see like climate impact all around the world, you know, happening, you know, in devastating ways on a daily basis. Maybe people will sort of think about collective action <laughs> and we'll have classes that immediately jump to, to solutions that are more cooperative. But unfortunately, uh, I haven't I haven't seen that to date. It also it also means like as as you may know, like it only takes one or two people who are who are resistant to that or who are defectors or cheaters within that system to sort of have the mm -hmm. whole thing go awry because once you have one or two people like that and other people see the cheaters, they're like, well, I don't want to be the person who's not cheating. Totally. <laughs> so the system goes south pretty fast. Yeah, no one wants to be a sucker. One thing that's occurring to me that would be fun is to actually have like a network of folks who are using a particular game in their classrooms as a research program. And, you know, you could have essentially qualitative interviews. Well, both mix of qualitative and quantitative interviews with each of these teachers at the end and say, how did that go? If there's a way of collecting data, quantitative data about the how the games actually did go, that would be, for for example, in my community, a very valuable thing to do, independently of it maybe producing like a collaborative paper at the end. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to think about doing something like that if I if I had some collaborators. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. No, there's I have a couple of colleagues who have mentioned this game out to already, and I think they'd they'd be interested in trying it in their fall classes. So who knows? Great, um, Eric. Are there other final topics you want to cover threads that we started to unravel that you want to tidy up again before we sign off no i mean i think um one thing i mean we talked a little bit about how you facilitate these games and i thought i thought your way of doing it was was fantastic and um, i think it takes some some experience to do those we have i think we have a video i don't think we have a video for this game i think we have a video for one of the other games I don't, did you mm. see a video tutorial at any point I could not find one though. No. Yeah, I think I think we should have that because I think I think getting a sense of what this looks like sometimes it's a little unfamiliar in practice and what this looks like and and I think in a lot of cases um, you mentioned you're sort of like I don't know how this is going to go. Sometimes people what they do is they try to keep it too tightly on the rails because they want it to go a particular way, mm -hmm. and I, that that takes away a lot of the sort of like the lessons from it. If if I felt a lot of lessons come from I made I made choices. This is what happened with those choices. How can I make better choices? Um, and so I think I think being able to sort of represent that in different kinds of ways so people know how to facilitate it is an important thing that we we also need to be able to support better. Yeah, well, I think part of that gets back to this activation energy again that's required. I think one of the challenges that teachers face or faculty face is letting go maybe a little bit of the control yeah. they would have. Like if I yeah. have my 15 PowerPoint slides, I know exactly what's going to happen in my classroom. <laughs> We're going to go through those 15 PowerPoint slides in that order. In this context, you're giving more agency to the students, but that creates more uncertainty about what's going to happen, which I think yep. if you're not kind of comfortable with that can create a little bit of anxiety. Yep. 
yep, exactly. with the instructors. Well, great, Eric. This has been wonderful. Again, like I loved teaching the game. I'm excited to use it again in the fall. And I'm excited to kind of correspond with you, hopefully, about how that all goes. Great. No, I, I, please, please stay in touch. Um, and uh, and thank, thanks for taking the time to talk about this. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.